Tonight's passage is Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So, if you've been here throughout the month of December, uh, you know that we have been doing a series on the Nativity, where we've been looking at all the characters in the Nativity and asking what can we learn from their parts of the Christmas story. So we started with Mary and Joseph, then we did the shepherds, last week we did the Magi, and now we come to the one who makes all of it go, the infant Jesus. Um, so I'm excited to finally get to the star of the story. One Christmas season, a long time ago, I remember that my mom was playing Christmas music, as she usually did. And um, at one point in the album we were listening to, a voiceover came on, and it recited the prophecy from Isaiah that we always hear around this time of year. Uh, The prophecy that says, as Keith read in our invocation, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. And uh, I remember the man reciting it with a very strong, dignified voice. Virgin will be with child. And my younger brother had a confused look on his face, and he said, but they called him Jesus, not Emmanuel. And that's true, isn't it? Uh, Today, some people are named Emmanuel. Occasionally, you'll meet someone named Emmanuel, but that wasn't the name given to the child that we celebrate at Christmas. We call him Jesus, obviously, um, or as it would have been in the original language, Yeshua. But what my brother didn't realize uh, was that in this case, Emmanuel wasn't a name, but a description. Uh, It's like if a prophecy had been given about Steve Jobs that said they will call him the CEO of Apple. Or if a prophecy had been given about Michael Jackson and said they will call him the king of pop. And the reason I bring that up is because, like my brother when he was a kid, I think many of us have this tendency to hear that description, Emmanuel, or to sing it in our Christmas songs, and to think of it more like a name than a description, you know, like a nice-sounding string of letters that refers to the child that we commonly think of as Jesus, but not as an actual insight into who Jesus was and who he is, which is unfortunate because Emmanuel is a very significant description. What Emmanuel means is God with us. God with us. When Matthew wrote his gospel, he quoted that prophecy from Isaiah, and he said that it had been fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus, he said, is God with us. And at Christmas, that's what we celebrate. We celebrate the birth of God with us. Now, you might ask, okay, well, hasn't God always been with us? I mean, 
after all, isn't he everywhere? That's kind of part of the whole idea of God, right? He's omnipresent. And like the psalmist said, uh, long before Jesus was born, he wrote, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. So there is a sense in which God has always been with humanity, right? Because there's nowhere that he's not. Where can I go to flee from your presence? Nowhere. I mean, the psalmist says it more poetically than that, but that's his answer, nowhere. But Emmanuel, God with us, that means something more than just God is here. With doesn't just mean here. If someone looks at you intensely and says, are you with me? You know they're not just asking, are you in the room right now? Are you present? They're asking something like, are you supporting me? You know, are we on the same team? Do you care about me? Do you understand where I'm coming from? And what we celebrate at Christmas is that on a night long ago, a baby was born, and that baby was God with us. And the reason Jesus is God with us is because he wasn't just any baby. The scriptures teach us that Jesus was and is God himself. And I know that sounds like a really crazy idea. The fancy word that's been used for centuries to express this miracle is incarnation. Jesus is the incarnation of God. And what that means is Jesus is God in the flesh. The scriptures tell us that God is spirit, uh, meaning that he's not like created things. He's not created, he's the creator. So he's not material. He's not material stuff. Rather, he's the power that brought and continues to sustain all material things in existence. And yet, okay, by a miracle of his own design, God incarnated himself in Jesus. God became a human being. The power that created and sustains the world entered into the world that he created. And that's what we sing about in that old carol that we just sang about a little while ago. Hark the herald angels sing. Uh, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Now, you might ask, well, does the Bible really teach this, this crazy idea that God became a human being? Are you sure that's not just something that the church came up with later, something, some sort of myth that got built on, you know, over time as people got carried away with the idea that there was this guy, Jesus, he came, he was a good teacher and everything, but then people kind of blew it out of proportion by teaching this whole idea that he was God in the flesh. Well, to answer that, I would say, let's look at the beginning of the Gospel of John, right there in the Bible, uh, because for anyone who has doubts, that's a place where this idea of the incarnation is taught really, really clearly. This is what it says, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And then skipping down to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, I realize that those verses can sound a little confusing. 
Um, sometimes, I remember as a kid, I would hear these quoted all the time, and they just kind of sounded like nonsense to me. I was like, what, what in the world is that saying? Um, but that's mainly because of the use of the word, word. Uh, and if you're having trouble making sense of it, I recommend replacing the word, word, with Jesus. Because I can assure you, I can promise you wholeheartedly that that is what John meant when he was using the word, word. He was referring to Jesus. This comes at the start of this whole book that is about Jesus. So when he says word, he's talking about Jesus. And the reason he refers to Jesus as the word is because in Greek, which is the language this was originally written in, um, in Greek, the word word uh, was used in philosophy to refer to something that mediates between God and the world. So the word was the term used to refer to the bridge between God and the world. Over here you have God, God is spirit, God is transcendent, above and beyond the world. Over here you have the world of material things. And, and the word word referred to this bridge between the two. So if we swap out word for what it represents, here's what the passage says. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So what we have here is a really clear teaching that Jesus existed long before he was born that night and laid in a manger in Bethlehem. What we have here is this clear teaching that Jesus pre-existed all created things. In the beginning was Jesus, right? And not only did Jesus pre-exist all created things, but it was because of him that all created things came to be. In other words, this passage clearly teaches that Jesus, the man Jesus that people saw and spoke to 2,000 years ago, um, that he was the creator. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Remarkably, the creator became like the creation. Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, I realize that this passage is still a little confusing because it says something that sounds logically impossible, doesn't it? It says that Jesus was both with God and that he was God. What? With God and was God. That's weird. How can someone be with a person and at the same time be that person? Well, what John is doing here is he is expressing a holy mystery that our human minds will never be able to completely wrap our, our, our heads around. Uh, it's a mystery that's come to be known as the Trinity. And the idea of the Trinity is the idea that God, in his essence, is a perfect, eternal relationship of three persons. And these are the three persons that we call the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And each of these persons in nature is fully God. The Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, and the Holy Spirit is fully God. So we can say that the Son, Jesus, is with God, with the Father. And at the same time, we can say that the Son is God. Now, if that's hard for you to understand, that's okay. It's hard for everyone to understand. Uh, we're not going to spend Christmas Eve trying to solve the Trinity. Um, but what I'd like us to consider tonight is the possibility that maybe the fact that the Trinity is so hard to understand is actually evidence that it doesn't originate in the human mind. 
You know, maybe the incomprehensibility of the Trinity is proof that it actually comes from God. I don't know about you, but my own brain would never think to write something like, Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. I just would never say that. <laughs> so why did the gospel writer say that? Well, because ultimately, he wasn't the author of that idea. It's not a human idea. It's an idea that was revealed to him by God. But anyway, the Trinity aside, the idea of the incarnation, this idea that God became a human being, it's right there in Scripture. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So here's the way I put it. Jesus is Emmanuel because he is incarnation. Right? He is God with us because he is the Word made flesh. God's always been here. He's always been here among us. But through the incarnation, he became with us. Now, analogies for the incarnation, they're, they're always going to be imperfect. Uh, but the incarnation is a little bit like if the owner of a failing Major League Baseball team joined that team in order to lead them to victory. Uh, instead of just criticizing from a distance and saying, boy, you guys need to get your act together, your record is terrible, I'm embarrassed to be your owner, instead he actually gets into the game himself. And I realize that in most cases we would not want our sports team's owners playing on the sports teams that they own. That would not help at all. Um, but when God's the owner and the team is humanity, it works. Through the incarnation, God joins the team of humanity, the failing team of humanity. And by doing that, he leads our team to victory. And by doing that, he reveals that he is truly with us because he's on the same team. You know, one of the things that I think is so beautiful about the Incarnation is that it helps us to deal with one of the strongest objections that the modern world has to the idea of God. And that objection is something that's often called the problem of evil. It's uh, basically the objection that says, well, there can't really be an all-loving, all-powerful God. That just doesn't make any sense because the world is just too messed up, right? Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. The world's filled with violence and racism and injustice. You know, how can there truly be an all-loving, all-powerful God when things happen like the crisis in Aleppo right now? How, how does that make any sense at all? And I think that without the incarnation... We ask that question, and we just can't help but feel like if God is real, he's distant. He's removed. It's like he's off in space somewhere. He's looking at us from a distance. He's just sort of criticizing from a distance, judging from a distance. But the incarnation, when we understand it, it shatters that image of God. It might not explain exactly why an all-powerful uh, all-loving God allows all the evil and suffering that he allows in the world, but it shows us that he's willing to experience it himself. He's not removed from it. He's not off in space. Through, through the incarnation, God gets his hands dirty. Right? He plunges himself in the middle of the pain and suffering in the world. And if an all-powerful God is willing to experience the pain of human existence he must have a good reason for allowing that pain. We might not be able to understand it, but we have a reason to trust him 
You know, if a leader of a country sends you to war, you might have trouble trusting that you're going for a good reason, right? Uh, for all you know, maybe he's sending you just because he wants to make some money and boost his ego. Right? You're, not, you're not sure. But if that same leader is willing to lead the charge into, into battle and suffer and die, then you're probably going to be a lot more likely to trust that he has a good reason for going to war. Right? And similarly, when we understand the incarnation, what it's all about, the incarnation helps us to trust that God has a good reason for allowing what happens in the world, the pain and suffering that we go through. Because he doesn't just ask us to experience it, right? He's willing to enter into that experience himself. He's willing to lead the charge. The incarnation doesn't necessarily solve the problem of evil, it doesn't explain everything, but it shows that in the midst of evil, God is truly with us. He's with us in our suffering and in our pain. Without the incarnation, I think that God is kind of like a friend who says, I won't be able to make it, but I'll be there with you in spirit. You know how we say that to each other when we can't actually be present uh, with one another? Sorry, I can't be there. I'll be with you in spirit. And that's a nice sentiment, but it's not really what we want, right? But because of the incarnation, we know that God is more like a friend who comes to you in the midst of your need and he puts his hand around you and he says, I'm with you. That's the difference. Now, Jesus was the incarnation of God throughout his entire life. But at Christmas, we focus on the beginning of his life, on his infancy. And I think there's a lot of value in that. Because when we look at the infant Jesus lying in the manger, we see just how far God was willing to go to be with us. He was willing to be born as a baby. I mean, think about what a crazy act of humility that is. I think it's the greatest, well, I'm sure it's, it's the greatest act of humility in history. Nothing else even comes close to that. You know, you have, you have God, the Almighty One, who can't even walk or crawl. God, the one who spoke creation into existence, not able to even say a single word or use language at all. God, the only truly self-sufficient being, now dependent on a mother and father for food and shelter. God, the one who is everywhere, the omnipresent one, limited in time and space to a particular body, in the body of a baby, no less. You know, God, the one who owns everything in the whole universe, born to a couple of poor Jewish kids. God, the one who's deserving of the highest possible honor, laid in a feeding trough for animals, because there's no room for him anywhere else. God, the transcendent, all-powerful spirit, subject to bodily functions and illness and eventually death. And we have to realize the incarnation means that Jesus really was fully human. Not just partly human, but fully human. You know, I don't like that line in Away in a Manger that says, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Like, I, I told Steve specifically, don't play that song because I'm going to make fun of it later. <laughs> because it seems to be saying that the infant Jesus was just too holy to cry. But if the incarnation is real, then Jesus was a real baby. And I've never had any babies, but I know real babies cry. 
fact, I think I've heard a few crying tonight. <laughs> That's what they do. Which means Jesus cried. And I'm sure that he did all the other things that babies do. So what incredible humility that God would be willing to become a crying baby. I, I think it's safe to say that no one has ever willingly descended from such a high place of authority and power to such a lowly place of dependency. You know, we get impressed when executives uh, at top companies actually take the time to go and just visit and spend a little time with low-level employees, right? But this is a whole nother level of humility than that. This is more impressive than the top executive of a company going and cleaning the bathrooms. This is way beyond that. The creator becoming like the creation. It's mind-blowing. That should fill us with awe that God is with us. And not only should it fill us with awe, but it should fill us with gratitude. Because God didn't do this. He didn't engage in this crazy act of humility just because he could. Right? He did it to save us. He did it to rescue us. Now, you might ask, well, if we were in trouble and we needed to be rescued, what good does God being born as a baby do for us? How does that help? Well, there's a couple ways of answering that, but I, I want to finish today by answering it uh, just in a very general way. Here's what I would say. If you look at the story of the Bible as a whole, here's what it teaches. It teaches that the fundamental problem in, of human existence, the fundamental thing that we all struggle with, is that there is a separation between us and God. We've been created for union with God. That is what we long for. That is what we desire in the deepest parts of ourselves. That's what we're created for, and that is what we long for. But sin has separated us from God. Uh, both our own sin and the sin of the people around us and the sin of those that have preceded us, all of it has a cumulative effect in separating us from God. And the problem is bad enough that we cannot work our way up to God. We can't do it. We can't bring ourselves close enough to God through our own efforts, to experience this union that we long for, to resolve the problem of this separation. But through the incarnation, God moves toward us. Okay? We can't move up to God, but God can move towards us. And he did. He came down because we couldn't go up. And he came pretty far down, didn't he? All the way down to a baby lying in a manger. So this Christmas, if you're looking for evidence that there's a God who is with you, right, a God who cares about you, a God who walks alongside you, then look at the baby in the manger and think of how far God came down. He's with us. And the last question that we have to ask, though, is are we with him? He's come down to us. He has come. He has come so far. <laughs> He's presented the gift of himself. But like with all gifts, we can either receive that gift or we can say, well, I'm not interested. And <clears throat> I think that around Christmas, this time of year when we're giving and receiving gifts and we're remembering uh, the greatest gift of all that God offered to us, it's hard not to at least raise the issue of have we ourselves embraced and received this gift? that God offers to us. And if you're here tonight 
and you feel like you have never said, yes, I do want to receive the gift of Jesus. I do want to uh, follow Jesus. I do want to let him into my life and let him be Lord of my life. Um, I would consider, I would, I would encourage you tonight to consider making that decision. Um, I'm going to pray in a moment, and I'm going, to, I'm going to pray on your behalf if that reflects the desire of your heart. Um, and if you pray that for the first time and you would like to talk to somebody about it, um, please come and talk to me or talk to the prayer ministers later during the communion or talk to Keith, um, talk to somebody. Um, but, and if you've already made that, that uh, received that gift, I encourage you to, be, uh, to remember this Christmas that God is with us, truly with us, and to be in awe of that all over again. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the radical act of humility that you engaged in for our sake, uh, to be born as a baby, to live the life that that we could not live, that that perfect life. Um, Thank you for entering into our experience, God. We thank you that you are truly with us, that we don't have to go through the challenges of life uh, with a God who is distant and remote, uh, but with a God who willingly enters into um, our human experience. And God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. And Lord, right now I want to pray on behalf of uh, anyone who may want to receive that gift for the first time. Lord, I know that the fundamental problem of my, my life is this separation between myself and you, Lord. And Lord, I acknowledge that you, came, you chose to come near to me when I could not come near to you. Lord, I want to embrace you as you have come near, God. I want to receive you into my life to bridge that gap that sin has created so that I can have union with you, Lord. I welcome you into my life, and I I choose to follow you. And Lord, for all of us here, I pray that the reality of God with us would flood our minds and our hearts this Christmas. God, we thank you for your presence, both on that Christmas night and in our lives and in our hearts here and now. In Jesus' name, amen.